take your copy of scripture and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter three. 
And uh, we'll be finishing up our sermon series on being rooted in Jesus. And since the beginning of this series, we've been talking about what it looks like to have Christ rooted in our life, to be built up in him, to be encouraged in him, to be settled in him. And what we've been finding out that when we are rooted in Christ, Christ impacts every facet of our life. Last week, we talked about how Christ impacts our marriages and our parenting relationships. And then it kind of seems what we're going to deal with today is a sharp turn to the left. Uh, Something that we don't really look at or understand as being part of how Christ impacts our life. And so we're going to start this morning and look at the the relationship of slaves and masters. Why is that even there? Why why is that even included in this? And we're going to find out in just a second why. But I want you to join with me in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 22. Slaves. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, that is, the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will be received the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Seems kind of weird. Why would Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, include this type of relationship in this word? Well, I think we need to understand today that he's going to be dealing with a problem that was facing the church at that time. The whole book of Colossians is Paul trying to help these people understand and fight the problems that they have inside their church, the bad teaching, the bad understanding, the bad way to live. And this is one of those things. And so Paul's dealing with a real issue and he takes it head on. And in fact, he has a scandalous reverse of what seemed normal. I mean, this is so abnormal to us. We don't live in a society where slavery is a functional part of how we live. And yet in the early church, especially in in the Greek uh, states and in the Greek culture, that was a normal part of life. And so I want you to imagine you have this house church in Colossae. In fact, they met in a home and we're gonna talk about that more in a minute. And in that home, you would have people who were both slaves and slave owners. And Paul says that the gospel being rooted in Christ impacts every facet of our life. And he's going to completely reverse this understanding of slaves and masters. In fact, what he's saying here is he goes to the slaves first and talks about their relationship with God. Here's what he says. He says, slaves, you are more free than your masters. Completely flips this on on its head. The slaves are more free from their master. They may be in physical bondage, but they're not in spiritual bondage. And he says, listen, here's the thing. You can love God with all of your heart because nobody owns you. You are God's child. You are God's possession. No mortal man owns you. You may be in physical bondage, but you are spiritually free in the Lord. And he says, work to please God. You are completely free to please God and not men. You're completely free in Christ. And he says, you're completely free to trust and to wait for God's deliverance in your life. Now, this would have been staggering in the early church, especially in this church, where you have slaves and slave owners coming to church together. And Paul sends this word through the Holy Spirit to them. And here's the reversal, that the slaves who are in physical bondage are more free than the masters who they think own them. And then he comes to the masters. And he says, masters, there's something more sinister and sneaky working in your life. There's a more sinister and sneaky form of slavery that you're dealing with here. And it's called blind spots. 
The question that we look at and the question that people outside of the faith look at and say, well, why didn't God just say slavery is bad? He is. When we get done with this today, you're gonna see where he's saying that slavery is bad. But here's the reality. Here are masters who are going to church, who have made a faith commitment in Jesus, who've been transformed by him, but there's areas in their life that Christ isn't rooted in. And they're called blind spots. And he says, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here's the reality. Here's the much scary and sinister and sneaky form of slavery that these guys were dealing with and that we all deal with in our life. We all have blind spots. We all have places in our life that Christ isn't rooted in, that Christ hasn't transformed, and we don't see them as wrong. I think if you were to have come to the Colossian church in the home that it was in and walked in and saw this, and you would have said, how can this be? And they would have said, what's the problem? We're just like everybody else. We're doing the exact same things that everybody else is doing. This is accepted in our culture. Why is this a problem? And so to really understand what's happening here is that we have to understand that the Holy Spirit is speaking to blind spots in people's lives. Now, to give you some little extra information that makes this even better, there's a little book called Philemon. It's right before the book of Hebrews. Actually, it was written before Colossians. The apostle Paul had never been to Colossae, had never preached at that church there, but he knew that there was a church in the home of a guy called Philemon. And this Philemon was a church planner church founder. In fact, we're going to read about a guy in a little bit later. His name is Archippus. Archippus was the pastor of this church in his home. Archippus was Philemon's son. So he's a follower of Jesus. He's a church planner. He has raised a son who's become a pastor and he was a slave owner. Does that all make sense? Does that all fit together? We, we look at this and say, how can he be a Christian and a slave owner? How can he be a church planner and a slave owner? How can he raise a pastor and be a slave owner? Because he had a blind spot in his life. And here's the reality. We get this book of Philemon before we get the book of Colossians. And the entire book of Philemon is Paul making an appeal through the Holy Spirit to Philemon saying, there is a slave that has run away from you. His name is Onesimus. And I am sending him back to you because he's come to faith in Jesus. And I'm sending him back to become your brother and not your slave. And so he appeals to Philemon as a brother in Christ to say, I want you to let him go. In fact, I wanna quote some things from the book of Philemon right here that blew me away. This is what Paul says to Philemon. He says, Philemon, let your faith become effective in your life. Isn't that the whole point of what we're talking about in the book of Colossians? Let your faith become effective in your life. Let Christ be rooted in your life. Let Christ deal with the blind spots in your life. And so Paul looks to Philemon and he says, let your faith become effective in your life. And how does he do that? He says, the way that your faith can become effective is welcoming home Onesimus, not as property, not as a slave, but as your brother. In fact, Paul goes so far to say, let your faith be effective by setting him free. And Paul follows us up with these beautiful things. Here's what he says to Philemon. He says, listen, I have confidence in you that you're going to do what is right. Paul says, I could go so far to command you and say to set him free, but I'm not gonna do that because I know that you listen to Jesus and I know that Christ is at work in you and I have confidence that when you see this blind spot in your life and how Christ is not rooted in this place in your life, how your life and faith are not effective here, you're gonna do what's right. And then he says, Philemon, Here's what I see in your life. 
I see that you listen to Christ. I see that you bring joy and comfort and love and refreshment to the people in your church. Now that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? It's hard to see these two different pictures of here's a man who owns human beings created in the image of God. How does that work? And on the other hand, he's bringing love and comfort and hope and refreshment and joy to people because he listens to Jesus. Here's the reality. This is where we all live. We all have places in our life that don't line up. We all have places in our life that are blind spots where Christ isn't rooted and yet there are places where we listen to him and we follow him and we bring hope and love and joy. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the power of what's happening here. Paul has written a letter to Philemon calling out his most egregious blind spot. He's written it. He sends it to Archippus, his son, to be read in the church that Philemon goes to. His son has to stand up and confront his father and say, this is a blind spot in your life and you need to listen to Jesus. And on top of that, this guy's blind spot is put in the Bible forever. Would you enjoy that? Would you enjoy Jesus writing to you and putting your blind spots in the Bible forever? And so that's what he does. And to understand what's happening in Colossians 3 is we have to understand Philemon. So he has already presented this to Philemon. He's already asked him to make this change. And so you say, how does it work out? Does he listen? Does he not? Well, in chapter four, verse nine, we're gonna get to this in a few minutes. We hear about Onesimus again. And Paul says that Onesimus has been a help to him. Onesimus has ministered to him while he's in prison. And so evidently what happened, it says that you have welcomed him in as one of you. Philemon heard the message. He saw his blind spot and he changed. So you say, well, why is he writing again to masters and to slaves? Because not everybody in the church saw their blind spot. I mean, isn't that why we need the church, that we need to continue to come to church? We don't all see our blind spots at the same time in the same way. And so Paul is following up this teaching to Philemon and he makes this for the whole church. See, sometimes it's really easy for us to think that the message that we're hearing from the word is for somebody else and not for ourselves. It would have been very easy for other slave owners in the congregation at that time to say, well, I'm not Philemon and so he's not talking to me. This isn't about me. I don't have a runaway slave that I need to welcome home. I don't have that issue in my life. And yet Paul comes back and he says, listen, the way that we treat people shows where Christ is rooted in our life. And we all need to ask ourselves, what are our blind spots? What are our blind spots? Where are the things that my life doesn't line up with Christ? Now you may say, well, wait, how do I know that? How do, I, how do I see that in my life? It's a blind spot. How do I know it and how do I see it? Well, he gives us this clue when he talks to the masters. Here's what he says. Chapter four, verse one. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here's the question that you wanna ask yourself. Does every aspect of my life match my master? 
I want you to really put yourself in the place of being in that small church gathering in in Colossae. Paul's written this letter. You're so excited to hear it. Archippus gets up and begins to speak and he's reading the letter to them. And it gets to this point where he says, masters, give justice and fairness like your master. And you have to begin to ask yourself and check your heart and say, does my life look like my master? And I want you to think about being one of those slave owners in that building that day and thinking, okay, wait a second, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. This is completely accepted in my culture. And yet here's what Jesus is saying. I'm your master and I set slaves free. I'm your master and I forgive the debt of people who have debt against me. I'm your master. I forgive those people and I bring them into my family and I treat them as my own. Do you see how he takes this issue head on? He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. He takes it head on and says, listen, does your life match your master? And this is a question that we should be asking ourselves every day. Are there blind spots in my life? Does my life match my master? And I have a beautiful story about um, how I saw this work out in the life of someone I dearly love. There was a lady at my last church. She was in her late 60s when this happened. And uh, she began working with a prison ministry. And she came to me a couple of months after she started working there. And this is what she said. She said, Michael, I've never really thought that I was a prejudiced person but I've never been open to helping different people. And as I've worked in this ministry, I began to see that I have places in my heart where I've hated certain people. I didn't wanna participate with certain people. and I didn't wanna be used in this way. God showed me that. And she came forward one Sunday and she prayed for God to remove that blind spot in her life. And this transformed her from the inside out. See, this is the beauty of what being rooted in Christ is all about is that he points out the blind spots in our life. And when we come to him and confess them and repent of them, then he's able to come in and transform us from the inside out. To take someone like Philemon, who who was out looking for this runaway slave and he wanted him to come home and make him his property again, to making him a brother and a useful person in the kingdom of God to taking someone like my friend who, who struggled loving people and struggled serving people now and has that transform and now is open to doing those kind of things. And so the question for us today, what are your blind spots? Are you willing to make way for the king to come into your life and point out the blind spot and say, this doesn't line up. This doesn't reflect me. And are you willing for the king then to transform you from the inside out? Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm not a racist and I don't own slaves, so this isn't really about me. This is really about any blind spot that we have in our life. The way we talk, the way we think, the grudges that we hold on to, the hurt feelings that we hold on to, the actions that we do. We need to start looking and saying, God, is there anything in my life that you want to change? And he follows this up with a a very short phrase that almost doesn't seem to fit. In chapter four, verse two, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it 
with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned, though I may make it, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. It almost seems like a hard left turn from this really powerful confrontation about blind spots into prayer. But if you think about it, it's not that hard of a turn at all. How do we deal with the blind spots in our life if we don't pray? How do we have the strength and the power to be able to deal with what's happening in our life if we're not connected and listening to our master? So we need to come to the place where we stop leaning on our own understanding and we pray. Be devoted in prayer. He wants us to be devoted. And that means busily engaged in praying, being busily engaged in whatever we're doing, that we're devoted to it. Paul uses these terms throughout scripture. He talks about praying without ceasing, praying at all times. Our devotion is that we are constantly communicating with God, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're constantly seeking his will and his understanding in our life. See, I think we have a a very big misconception about prayer. Prayer isn't us telling God what's happening in our life. Prayer isn't asking God for what you want. Prayer isn't manipulating God to get the things that you think that you need. Prayer is coming to God and connecting to him to hear what he has to say about your life. We see Jesus praying so many times in scripture. And one of the favorite prayers is not my will, but yours be done. I think that is the heartbeat of being devoted in prayer to God, that our prayer is not my will. God, don't let me do what I wanna do. Don't let me go where I wanna go. Don't let me ask for what I wanna ask. Let me ask for your will. Let me seek your will. Let me be surrendered to your will. Not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because every situation that we find ourselves in needs prayer. One of the things that I am slowly realizing in my my life, and I say slowly because I have a thick skull. One of the things I'm slowly realizing in my life is there's not anything in my life that I can't not pray for. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too big. There's nothing in my life that I should not be praying about. I should be stopping at all times and saying, God, is this where you want me to be? God, is this what you want me to be doing? And is this how you want me to be acting? Do I really represent you right now? Be devoted in that. So he says, not my will, but your will be done. I think the point is that we are not to lean on our own understanding. And I think there's a verse about that somewhere in Proverbs. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The reason that we should not lean on our own understanding is because it's easy to not see the blind spots in our life. But when we are devoted to prayer and being connected to Christ and being rooted in him and communicating and hearing his will, he's going to illuminate those spots in our life. And he says, not just to be devoted, he says, to keep alert in prayer. Keep alert. Maybe your translation says, be watchful. 
But the idea here is that we need to be wide awake for the schemes of the devil and the temptations that come in our life. He doesn't want us to be asleep at the wheel. I'll never forget, and I think this is a great illustration of how many of us approach our prayer life. My grandfather worked at the Ford Glass plant in Nashville, Tennessee. They made windshields and they had these massive machines that guys would work on. And and basically they were just there. If a, a, a siren went off, they punched a button and it got everything back going. And I'll never forget, we went for a family day and we walked into the factory and there's this guy sitting next to the, this massive machine cranking out windshield. And he's sitting in a chair. He's got his feet kicked up on a desk and he is sound asleep. And as a little kid, that scared me to death. I'm, I'm looking at this massive machinery and I'm like thinking about all the million things that could go wrong. And yet here's this guy asleep at the wheel. How many of us walk through life asleep at the wheel? That, that when tragedy shakes, yes, we will wake up and pray, but what could have happened in our life if we'd been wide awake, we'd been watching, we'd been alert, that we could have been praying before we got into the situation that we're in. And so he says, be alert, be wide awake. And Jesus has prayed in other places. And I think this is a, a model for us to pray. In the Lord's prayer, he says, do not let me be led into temptation. Man, Jesus knows so well. Jesus is basically saying, listen, we need to be wide awake. We need to be alert. We need to be watchful. And one of the things that we need to be praying in our life is don't let me be led into temptation. Now, here's the reality. Maybe this is not the way it is for you, but it is in my life and I've seen it in many other people's lives. It doesn't take much to lead us into temptation. It doesn't take much for us to fall into temptation. And so here's the attitude. We need to be devoted to communicating with Christ, not my will, but your will be done. And in that communication, here's what we're saying. Don't let me be led into temptation. Don't let me be led into the sins that I enjoy. Don't let me be led into sins that are gonna hurt me and my family. Don't let me be led into blind spots where I justify and rationalize that it's okay because everybody else is doing it. Don't let, me, don't let me be led into temptation. And he prays, deliver me from evil. It's a great prayer to pray. God, you are the king. You are in control of all things. And I put my life, my eternity, my family, my finances, everything I have in your hands. And I pray that you would deliver me from evil. But even greater prayer Create in me a clean heart, oh God. See, too often we misunderstand the watchfulness and we misunderstand and we're asleep at the wheel and then, and then the bad things happen and then we fall into temptation and we think, well, now I can't go back to God. Here's the reality. Be devoted in your prayers and be devoted in the fact that you can come to Christ every time and ask for forgiveness and he will forgive you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness every time. Be alert. And he says, have an attitude of thanksgiving. I think this is very appropriate for us right now when there's not a lot of things that we're thankful for. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little overwhelmed with all the negativity that I'm hearing on the news and on Facebook and social media. Just, it's just in waves and people are complaining about everything in their life. 
And I understand it's easy to do that. I understand it's the easy way to look at things and just say, here's all the things that I don't like and here's all the things that aren't going my way, but here's the reality. There are so many things in our life and in this world that we can be thankful for. And I think it's a great habit that Paul, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is asking us to develop in our life and in our prayers that we pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. You know, the old hymn is right. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. I would encourage you today and this week and as we spend our time, as long as it may be, social distancing from each other, I want you to begin to part in your prayers a part of thanksgiving. And I could give you a million things that you can be thankful for, but I just wanna give you a couple and here's one. Here's something that we can be thankful for. We can be thankful that God knows your needs before you ask them. Right before we get to the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we shouldn't worry because God knows our needs before we ever ask. Isn't it amazing? And we can be thankful that we have a God who is in absolute control of everything, who understands everything perfectly, who knows exactly what we need. And so that when we come to him and pray, we're not informing him of anything, but we're taking all of our needs to him. We can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that God hears our prayers. I don't know if you've ever thought about a reality of what it would look like to have a God who doesn't hear prayer. To have a God who's not available when you need him. Or have a God who gets overwhelmed when people pray to him. You know, one of the things I've asked us as a church to do is every day at noon for us to pray together. And and in my weird mind, here's what I think about. It's like, God, how can you hear us pray all at the same time and yet hear us pray is only one at a time. See, here's the reality. When you are praying, you have God's ear. He hears your prayer. He's tuned in to you. He's interested in hearing what you have to say. He's interested in communicating to you. And it doesn't matter if every person on the face of the earth is praying at the same time. Our God is so big, he can tune into us as if there's only one. Be thankful. Be thankful that God hears our prayers. And the second part of that is is to be thankful that God answers our prayers. Now, I grew up in the South. You guys know that. I'm from Tennessee. And um, from an early age, I was inflicted with the damage of country music. And, and so I've had to listen to that all my life. And, and I'm not a fan, if you can't tell. And there's one country song in partic- particular that I can't stand. And it's Garth Brooks' Unanswered Prayers. And there's a line in there that just drives me crazy. He says, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I want you to hear me say this. There is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God answers all prayer. Now, it may not be the way that we want it. And it may not be in the time frame that we think that we need it. It may not be the, it may not look the way that we want it to, but here's the reality. God doesn't just listen to our prayers. God doesn't just hear our prayers. God answers our prayers. And the beauty and the reality that we can be thankful for is the way that God answers our prayers the most is to give us more of himself. And if you really think about it, that's what we need more than anything anyway. We need more of him. So he says, have an attitude of thanksgiving. 
Then he says to pray for the preaching of the gospel. Verse three, he's just praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison that, it may, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. I think this is a forgotten aspect of prayer that we pray for the preaching of the gospel. I, I really wanna take this opportunity and beg you to pray for me to pray for our church as we're trying to find ways to preach the gospel in this really weird time that we're in. That we'd make it clear, that we'd make it simple, that we'd make it available and that people would be open to hear it. Pray for God to work on people's hearts. They would be sensitive and open for that. But I think also included in this is when we pray for the preaching of the gospel, one of our prayers needs to be the prayer of Isaiah. When God says, whom shall I send and whom shall go for me? Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. One of the prayers that we need to pray in the proclamation of the gospel is this, here I am, Lord, send me. And then he, in verse five, talks about how we should treat people outside the church outside the family of believers. Now, this is kind of a sore subject for some people because in, in, in church life, you kind of have these two polar opposites. On the one end, you say the church has no business with the world and we must separate ourselves from the world and we not surround ourselves with non-Christians. And so we create all these little Christian subcultures. We have Christian movies and Christian bookstores and Christian restaurants because we don't wanna be around the bad people. And then we have this other end over here that says, no, let's embrace the world and look exactly like the world. And that's how we're gonna win the world. And Paul says, no, there's a way of wisdom. Listen to what he says. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be seat with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We need to be wise and make the most of our opportunities with people outside of our family, outside of the church family. He says, listen, be wise with outsiders. And I think one of the things that I wanna share with you today and, and being rooted in Christ and, and really kind of having the same attitude that your master did, here's the thing. Our master gravitated toward the people who everybody else said were outsiders. And so we need to come to understand that outsiders are not the enemy. They need rescuing. So we need to be wise and make the most of our opportunities. Recognize that outsiders are not the enemy. They need rescuing. And so we take advantage of every opportunity that we have. And I'm gonna tell you, this, this passage really kind of burns in my life because God has given me opportunities that I didn't take. When I lived in New Orleans and I was going to seminary, I, I became friends with a married couple. I loved them dearly. We had a lot of the same interests. We had a lot of the same, we enjoyed the same things. And we, we spent a lot of time together. They were wonderful and they took good care of me, but they weren't Christian. And I felt weird about our relationship and I felt weird about bringing Jesus in. And so I never took opportunities to do that. And as I was getting ready to graduate and leave, I just felt this burning in my heart that I had missed all these opportunities. And so I took them out to dinner and sat them down and just basically said, listen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we've spent almost three years together and I've never talked to you about Jesus. 
I'm sorry that I had opportunities to pray with you and I didn't do it. I'm sorry that I had opportunities to give you hope and joy and peace and I didn't do it. I'm sorry that I lifted our friendship above your eternity. I'm sorry. See, here's the reality. Too many times we allow our feelings of discomfort to keep us from taking opportunities to reach those who need it the most. Or we look at someone and we don't approve of their lifestyle and say, look, I can't be involved with that. I don't wanna be seen with that. And I want you to think about this. Where would Philemon be if Paul had taken that attitude? Where would Philemon be? He would, he would have this massive blind spot in his life that would never be changed because Paul said, I'm, I, can't, I can't be seen with a slave owner. I can't be friends with him. I can't talk to him. But he did. Take advantage of every opportunity that you have. And I love where he says, season everything that you say with grace as with salt. This picture that he's using here of salt is, you know, now we just basically use salt for flavor, but then it was used for preservation and flavor. And so here's what he's saying that we come and we get in such good understanding of grace and the message of grace, Jesus, that when we come into a conversation, we can talk about Jesus to preserve people's lives and to flavor them. That, that we're not trying to condemn, we're not trying to get you, we're not trying to humiliate people, but we step in with this powerful seasoning called grace and we spread it liberally over people's lives and say, here, here's a whole bunch of grace to season their life. Are you ready to do that? Are you able to do that? The end of the book, sometimes we skip because there's all these names in there of people that we don't know. And it's sad, so many times in the Bible, we skip over those sections where we have lots of names of people because we have no connection to them. But I want you to think about for just a moment how you would feel if your name was in this list or someone that you know was in this list. You'd wanna read it. You'd want other people to read it and you'd want them to know them. And so I wanna spend just a second to read about these ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through. Verse seven, as to all my affairs, Tychius, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who's called Justice, they're, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom who are from the circumcision and they've proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the full will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha and the church that's in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and you for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. 
Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. He ends the letter the way he does. May grace be with you. But I want to focus on just a moment that these people that he lists that we don't know about. When Christ is rooted in our life, we have to ask a question. Will I root my life in Christ and his plans for me? So many of these people that we hear in this passage that Paul talks about, Christ radically changed the plans of their life. They came to faith in him and they rooted themselves in him and then he began to use them. And here's what we take home from this. These are ordinary people. These are ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through. And Paul includes them to thank them. And I I wanna say this because this is important as well. There's no ordinary calling. There's no special calling of ministry. We're all called to be ministers. So there's no ordinary calling in this. It's just people being faithfully obedient to Jesus. And I love this. You see all these people who did all these different things. You have Tychius who brings information and you have you know, Aristarchus who's in prison and you have Luke who wrote Luke and Acts and you have all these different people playing all these different parts in God's kingdom and they're all important. We all have a place to play in God's work. And one of the things that really spoke to me as I read this, ministry isn't about one person. The church isn't about one person. Now it's it's about Jesus. It is that one person, but it's not about the pastor. The church family doing ministry together, it takes all of us to do the work that God's called us to do. And I think specifically how this has spoken to me, one good thing that's come out of this time of quarantine and self-distancing is this. I think we're all beginning to realize how much we need each other. I think we're all beginning to realize how much we need to be together and doing the work that Christ has called us to. Hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Don't let that become something that just fades away when we're able to come back physically together and be in the building. Don't ever forget it. I need you, you need me. We need each other to be the people that God has called us to be. So the question for us today is this, what are our blind spots? Are we praying the way that God wants us to pray? Are we devoted? Are we alert and watchful? Are we praying in thanksgiving? Are we praying for the gospel to go out? How are we treating people outside of the church? And are we someone that's being used in God's kingdom? In just a moment, I'm gonna pray as we close. Our instrumentalists are gonna come and they're gonna play as we have a time of decision right now, a time of response. I want you to be thinking about who Jesus is in your life. So you could have sat through all these messages and heard all of these things and thought, man, that's great. I'd like some of that. How does that work? Well, here it is. Until you have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus, none of these things can be real in your life. And if you've never taken that step of faith to ask Jesus to save you, I want you to do that today. It's very simple. Simply pray something like this. There's no magic words. And so you pray what's on your heart, but you can pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. I repent of my sin. I confess my sin and I wanna be cleansed by you. 
Come be the Lord and Savior of my life and make me new. I put my hope, my trust in you. If you prayed something like that, the Bible tells us that when you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And maybe you're here today and there's places in your life that you've recognized, wow, I I didn't realize that was a blind spot. In this moment, you can confess to Jesus and, and allow him to transform you from the inside out. Maybe you've recognized there's places you need to be praying and doing different things, but I I ask you now to respond to him. So I wanna pray for you. As we close this time of decision, I wanna pray. Father, I, I thank you for each person that is listening. God, that you would move on their heart and help them to respond. Father, let them be moved today to to root you in their life and be transformed. And Father, we'd love to hear about that. Help them to share with us, reach out to us, to let us know so that we can minister to them. But Father, help us to say yes. Say yes to you now. God, we ask that you would move us to be the people who are called by your name, who are rooted in Jesus, who live for you. We ask it in his holy and precious name. It's in his name we pray, amen.